From Mew Mew HQ in Milan, this is Mew Mew Musings, a co-production between Mew Mew Podcasts, Penny Martin, and In Talks With Productions. I'm Penny Martin. Welcome to Mew Mew Musings. The Italian fashion house Mew Mew has been championing female creativity and conversation over the past decade through international talks programmes and panel discussions. Now it's addressing the growing demand for expert opinion and real-world togetherness via a series of debates called the Mew Mew Musings. These are structured around friendly lunches to tackle timely topics related to modern forms of resistance. This week, we hear from the second debate of the series, which was held in New York in October 2019, when the motion was, This House Believes We Need to Stop Taking Photographs. As speaker, I asked the writer and tech expert Aminatou So to present in favour of the motion. Thank you so much, um, Penny, for having me. Um, We've taken too many photographs, I believe this. Ever since its invention in 1839, the photographic image and its steady evolution have shaped our experience of reality. From chronicling our changing world and recording the diversity of the world to helping us understand the science of emotion to anchoring us into consumer culture. But despite the meteoric rise of photography from a niche curiosity to a mass medium over the past century and a half, there's something ineffably yet indisputably different about visual culture today in the digital age. Something at once singular and deeply rooted at the essence of the photographic image itself. Susan Sontag, in her seminal collection of essays on photography, said that needing to have reality confirmed and experience enhanced by photographs is an aesthetic consumerism to which everyone is now addicted. I think we can all agree with that. Um, I follow a lot of you on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) The text was originally published in 1977. But Sontag's astute uh, astute insight resonates with extraordinary timeliness today, shedding light on the psychology and social dynamics of visual culture. The photographic image is a control mechanism we exert upon the world, upon our experience of it, and upon others' perceptions of our experience. She says, photographs really are experience captured, and the camera is the ideal arm of consciousness in its acquisitive mood. To photograph is to appropriate the thing photographed. It means putting oneself in a certain relation to the world that feels like knowledge and therefore like power. What makes this insight particularly prescient is that Sontag arrived at it more than um, many, many decades before the age of the social media photo stream, the ultimate attempt to control, frame, and package our own lives, our idealized lives for presentation to others and even to ourselves. The aggression this purposeful manipulation of reality through the idealized photographic image applies even more poignantly to the aggressive self-framing we practice as we portray ourselves pictorially on Facebook, Instagram, you name the platform that you are on. These images which idealize um, fashion, animal photography, you name it, uh, you're all into your weird little niche thing. Um, Not gonna kink shame anyone here today. (laughs) These images are no less aggressive um, than work which makes a virtue of plainness. So I'm talking about class pictures, your mug shots, your everything that we, um, you know, the sad desk lunch, everything that we say is just a plain um, depiction of what we're doing. There is an aggression that is implicit in every use of the camera. 
I am asking you and I'm asking us to consider how we participate in this kind of violence of self-assertion, a forcible framing of our identity for presentation, for idealization, for currency in the economy of envy. Photography has taken on the qualities of a mass art form, meaning that most who practice it don't practice it, don't practice it as an art. I'm a photographer, you're a photographer, Ansel Adams is a photographer. <laughs> the photograph has become a tool of utility in our cultural power dynamics. Like guns and cars, cameras are fantasy machines whose use is addictive. Ask yourself, when did the surveillance state emerge? A lot of people think that it was the, the advent of CCTV or that it was drones. Most people would say probably some, sometime around the 20th century. In this country, at least, the oldest piece in collection is from, from 1864, in which it captures, in which a professor, T.S.C. Lowe, inflated a balloon during the Civil War to float up to a thousand, field, a thousand feet over the battlefield, snapping shots of the Confederate forces. We have been monitoring each other for a very, very long time, and cameras make that so much easier. We also do not interrogate the fact that we have devices in our pockets that are just so helpful in um, surveilling each other. Lowe's device would then telegraph to these, these, the troop positions to the ground via a long wire where union generals would use them in strategic planning. It's a bit crude maybe, but it's not different from a lot of what we're doing today. It's also the first known instance of aerial surveillance some 150 years before drones, drones even became ubiquitous. My other argument to you is that treating the camera as an external memory device prevents our brains from processing things naturally. How does that persistent need to capture the moment, which so many of us feel at a concert, at a fashion moment like this, um, when you're looking into the eyes of a, of a hottie that you're really into, change when we actually experience the moment, both in the present and when we try to recall it down the line? That answer is actually quite illuminating. One of the major reasons we take photos in the first place is to remember a moment long after it has, it has passed. The birth of a baby, again, the sad desk lunch, um, you know, you name it. Much research has been done to figure out how taking photos impacts experience and memories. The results are pretty bleak, my friends. By crafting an experiment using a group of undergraduates on a guided tour of the Bellarmine Museum of Art, a professor figured out what exactly is going on in our brains. Her students were asked to take photos of objects that they looked on during a tour and simply to observe others. The next day, she brought the students into her research lab to test their memory of all the objects they had seen on the tour. Whenever they remembered a piece of work, she asked follow-up questions about specific visual details. The results are pretty clear. Overall, people remembered fewer of the objects that they had photographed. They also couldn't recall as many specific visual details of the photographed art compared to the art they had merely observed. When you take a photo of something, you're counting on the camera to remember for you. You're basically saying, okay, I don't need to think about this any further. The camera has captured the experience. You don't engage in any of the elaborative or emotional kinds of processing that really would help you remember those experiences because you've outsourced it to your camera. In other words, if your camera captures the moment, then your brain doesn't. There is a frightening term for this phenomenon, the photo-taking impairment effect. I know, it sounds, uh, it sounds really dumb on, on some level and it sounds really stupid. Um, of course, you would remember things if you were completely present in the moment, hyper-aware every minute of every detail, like some very zen master. Um, isn't that what photos are for? To refresh our fallible memories? 
While it's true that outsourcing our memory to, to devices can free up our brains to do other cognitive processing, the problem is that we're constantly going from one thing to the next. So instead of outsourcing so we can focus our attention on more important tasks, we have this constant stream of what's next, what's next, what's next, and never fully embrace any of the experiences that we are actually having. We are so busy capturing photos that afterwards we don't actually look at them. Who hasn't dumped a bunch of photos of a graduation trip or, uh, or a fancy trip that you went on into a Dropbox and promised to make an album and never looked at them again? I am asking all of you that question because I know that we are all guilty of that. The research on this is very clear. When people stop to physically take a photograph, they temporarily disengage from the moment they are living to handle that quick task. As a result, this suggests that our brains encode the moment less deeply than it might otherwise. Digital clutter abounds in our lives. It creates a cycle of anxiety that so many of us are terrorized by daily. So why not challenge yourself to a photo-free day? I've been doing it. It's pretty hard, but my brain is so much happier for it. <laughs> Aminatou So, speaking at Miu Miu Musings in October 2019. She went on to point out that photo anxiety isn't necessarily a recent phenomenon. Italo Calvino wrote a lovely short story, The Adventure of a Photographer, first published in 1958. It presents a marvellous characterization of the obsession of photography through its effect on one individual, Antonino. Like any good story, at least in my taste, the explorations that Calvino makes into the lore and obsession of photography, more generally, the human need to record the event of our lives has a timeless kind of quality. He uses the terminology of the computer era. Humans are endowed with what he calls internal memory, but unlike digital memory, our internal memory is soft. It is perishable, we forget, it's malleable. We remember an event one way when in fact it happened a completely different way. Yes, I know. Digital memory, too, can be very perishable, but it's not the same way. With coding and error correction detection mechanisms, digital memory readers know that when memory has gone bad and they can notify us not to trust what is being output. That is not true of the brain. Our brains are not so precise. A piece of some memory may morph or perish, but we don't necessarily know it. We swear things were this way when in reality they were a completely different way. With writing and painting, mankind acquired external memory. That is a much more permanent than the soft stuff in our heads, but writing and painting are malleable too. They're dependent upon the interpretation of the event by the writer or the painter to make the record. Photography and any other kind of mechanical recording device, whether it's a video or voice, is dependent on the human operator to the same extent. It has been said that a photograph speaks for itself but that's not always true. A photograph also depends on the whims and biases of the photographer. The photographer controls where to point the recording device, and then there is a conversation of the raw recording into the visual image ultimately displayed. While it's more evident today than ever before, given the precision and simplicity of digital image manipulation, it has also been possible to manipulate the final image displayed in order to convey an impression different than the reality that it was originally taken that was originally taking place and allegedly recorded. A photograph can be made to present an image more perfect than the reality it records. The smiling faces in the family portrait masking tensions and rivalries, for example. There are deep philosophical questions here. What is the reality of an event that happens in time, especially going forward into the future when the event is now in the past? Is all that matters 
of an event our internal memory of it, even if the memory morphs into something different than the initial reality? What matters more, the initial reality or our current memory of that reality? What of all these external aids to our memory, especially today given the limitless amount of memory now available, available via digital means? How far do we go in recording and preserving those records? How much is too much? Time spent recording, processing, and cataloging events takes time away from actually experiencing the events of our lives, from making new events worth recording. When does such an activity turn into an obsession? And what of the records? Who is to play them back? Where does time spent playing back a record, reliving a recorded memory come from? I'm going to stop there before I get to what is the meaning of life. <laughs> it's not too far away. But back to Calvino's story. In the opening paragraph, he describes the unnamed city's inhabitants who spend their weekends taking photographs. He says of their weekend lives, it is only when they have the photos before their eyes that they seem to take tangible possession of the day they spent. Only then that the mountain stream, the movement of a child with his pail, the glint of the sun on the wife's legs take on the, irre the, ever the irrevocability, ooh, can't speak today, of what has been and what can no longer be doubted. Everything else can drown in the unreliable shadow of memory. Antonino is introduced as the rebel, one who sees nothing but folly in the clamor to record every aspect of his life on film. Then, then Calvino tells us what it is with Antonino that underlies his discomfort. He's a bachelor. His circle of friends are getting married, having friends. These events bring about the need to record. Those six-month-old to toddlers will soon be seven-month-olds, and thus a record must be made. It is because they love that they photograph. Well, with Antonino, the process works in reverse. While on an outing with acquaintances, he is asked to take some photographs of a female acquaintance, and gradually, through the posing and framing in the viewfinder, he falls in love. The love fuels his desire to photograph and vice versa. His compulsion becomes obsession as the need for the perfect photograph, for recording his love's every waking and sleeping moment overwhelms him, bringing about his downfall. Along the way, in telling the tale of Antonino, Calvino gives commentary on the human need to record the events of our lives, on compulsion, on memory, on love, and obsession. One of the promises of modern photography is also that it creates community. One has to wonder, however, whether and how much the family circle has been replaced by the social circle as we construct our online communities around photo streams and share timelines. Similarly, Sontag notes that the heightened use of photography and tourism. These images validate experience, which raise the question of whether we engage in a kind of social media tourism today as we vicariously devour other people's lives. Photographs help people to take possession of a space in which they are insecure. Thus, photography develops in tandem with one of the most characteristics of modern activities, tourism. For the first time in history, large numbers of people regularly travel out of their habitual environment for short periods of time. It seems positively unnatural to travel for pleasure without taking a camera along. Photographs will offer indisputable evidence that the trip was made, that the program was carried out, that fun was had. I'm asking all of you to think about that moment when somebody has asked you for a selfie or a photo, somebody that you do not know very well, somebody who wanted to document that they were with you and how that photo was interpreted. I think that that is an experience that a lot of us have had and a lot of us have been made uncomfortable by. Photographs which cannot themselves explain anything are inexhaustible invitations to deduction, to speculation, and to fantasy. This insight about leisure and photography touches on our cultural cult of productivity, which we worship at the expense of our ability to be truly present. 
For most of us, especially those who find tremendous fulfillment and absorption in our work, the photograph is a self-soothing tool against the anxiety of inefficiency. This very activity of taking pictures is soothing. It assuages general feelings of disorientation that are likely to be exacerbated by travel or by tourism in the lives of people we know. Most tourists feel compelled to put the camera between themselves and whatever is remarkable that they encounter. Unsure, other response, unsure of other responses, they take a picture. This gives shape to experience. Stop, take a photo, move on. This method especially appeals to people handicapped by a ruthless work ethic. I think that those of us who suffer from that can identify. Using a camera appeases the anxiety which the work-driven feel of about not working when we are on vacation is supposed to be having fun. Then we have something to do that is a friendly imitation of work. We take pictures. In conclusion, I would like to remind you all that this is not a question about technophobia. It's not a question about fear of devices. It is not a question of who will tell our stories. It is a question of asking ourselves if we have had enough. This house believes enough photographs have been taken. That was Amina Tussauds speaking at Mew Mew Musings in October 2019, making a strong case for the motion. After guests had absorbed the facts over their starter course, it was time for me to call the writer and curator Charlotte Cotton to speak against the motion. We need to stop taking photographs. believes we need to stop taking photographs. Does it, Penny Martin? <laughs> My wise and eloquent cohort this lunchtime gives us all really important pause for thought. And I share with you, and I'm sure we all share with you, in acknowledging our responsibility, both individually and collectively, to consider at what cost we communicate through our photographs and our active participation in their dissemination. We are, if we're born uh, before the turn of the century, essentially playing catch up in comprehending photography as a shared public and potent language, perhaps the essential language of our time. This literacy learning curve is no different on a fundamental level to the ways that we have already learned through practice and mistakes to communicate, negotiate, and share with our voices and our words. It is a particular moment to think about photographs and how they behave, and can be so readily misquoted and orphaned from intent and authorship by the forces that militate our image world at large. So there's gonna be crossover between us. And if that wasn't bad enough, the majority of what we might just about call photographs are made and read by machines. The spectres of the current iterations of state surveillance, corporate data mining, celebrity culture, the media, media othering loom ever larger with all their inherent structural and ideological biases that convert our behaviours, our ostensibly secret peccadilloes and intimacies, and our bodies into metadata. 
I suspect that this House believes that enough photographs have been taken because it's a way to challenge us this lunchtime to acknowledge our own complicity in providing the content for this hot mess. <laughs> Since its beginnings, photography has been implicated in all of the above from its role in criminalizing social resistance and activism since the 1850s as evidence in support of eugenic theories, the discreet brown enveloped reveal of pornographic voyeurism, the constructed visual endorsement of social elites, and the hubristic records of colonial and imperial power. I'm really conscious that I'm standing here in a beautiful outfit in a lovely restaurant saying all of that, but that was important to get that across. <laughs> but there are other histories of photographs as long and as resilient that are my divining rod for rejecting this motion. <clears throat> I summon up my first witnesses for a better reality, the spirits of Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass, the two seminal figureheads who used photography and oratory as the means by which they wrote their stories into the public sphere. I'll say that again. They wrote their stories into the public sphere. They harnessed the burgeoning democracy of photography of the mid-19th century to literally, literally embody the idea of a greater reality. And they show us how photography and freedom are inherently connected. Sojourner Truth sold to raise funds for her abolitionist work small photographs called carte visites, calling cards, and they were of her own image. And underneath each of the pictures was a phrase, it was printed, and the phrase was, I sell the shadow to support the substance. I should drop the mic now. Charlotte Cotton, arguing against the motion in October 2019, that photographs have always been crucial political tools. Likely, Frederick Douglass was the most photographed American of the 19th century. And his first photographic portrait, a daguerreotype, was made in 1841, the same year that he began his astounding trajectory as an orator and reformer. And he had over 160 portraits that he commissioned and circulated widely in a highly calculated strategy of Douglas's to use his visual presence and agency to inspire, counteract, and destroy the dehumanization and enslavement of Africans and African-Americans. To quote Douglas, who wrote extensively about photography, poets, prophets, and reformers are all picture makers, and this ability is the secret of their power and of their achievements. They see what ought to be by the reflection of what is and endeavor to remove the contradiction. The right to be seen and to see each other is as profound a gesture now as it was in the 19th century. Photographs articulate our stories. They fill in the gaps. They give us more time. I know I would say this, but I don't see the camera in human hands as an impediment to intimacy and connection. I consider it as the license to really see. Human civilization has always had its storytellers and its poets 
who, yes, might not throw themselves right into the middle of the action and instead take one step back within practically all group activities, that's a valid role. And they are also the family and community members who do actually make the albums and caption the photographs. To chronicle lived experience at real proximity is a sacred thing of which photography is just a recent chapter. I know I'm nearly out of time and this is not an art lecture. But Frederick Douglass's constellation of poets, prophets, and reformers is alive and well. And there is a critical mass of the wonderful prophetic human beings that we now call artists who are resisting, counter-arguing, and subverting, and articulating greater truths in the face of our structure, structural and inner oppressors and censors. But the House has not proposed that we separate the few image makers from the many with regards to its influence, the influence of the House, that we call for a world, worldwide photographic amnesty or strike. We need to return to ourselves and ask what the substance of our constant shadow making is for each of us. And I'll call one more person into the room, the artist Jason Evans, who has for over 10 years uploaded a single photograph for 24 hours only, every day onto his website called thedailynice.com. It's one of the most poetic, most sane, and human accounts of what photographs can do. And I say sane because The Daily Nice makes me think about the mental health mantra that you have to start from where you are. I think the world around each and every one of us has pictures just waiting to happen. Photography forces you to have to find something nice, an encounter that touches you and registers like a scent or a, or a counted story as a connection that's legible to the very substance of who you are and where you are. Um, I've been teaching in Georgia State University the past three days, and over dinner, which I paid for, I was like, okay, I'll pay for dinner if you sit and debate with me the house's motion. And it's really informed how I shape my argument um, today. I realize that this platform is now a very crowded space with Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass and Jason Evans, but if you could imagine 12 really inspiring young photographers crowding around me at this moment. I'll quote one of the students, the one who got really teary-eyed at the prospect of there being no more photographs. <laughs> <laughs> images are our language. If we get rid of images, we get rid of communication. I urge you to vote against this motion. <laughs>
Well, then, why don't I start with one? Um, uh, Aminatou, let's start with you. I just wanted to pick up on the kind of uh, topics about um, memory loss and uh, this idea about... Because I mean, the research that I'd been reading was saying that uh, um, what was happening by allowing our cameras to become our default um, uh, mechanism of recording things was either that we, our recall of an event was lessened or we got a pictorial record of an event, but our verbal or textual or kind of meaning uh, record was lessened by the dominance of the visual. And I just wondered, by um, this surfeit of photographs, are we becoming a less intellectual society? I mean, you know, doing research on this, this point was the thing that shocked me the most, was how um, the research was like very conclusive about this, actually, about how by not allowing a brain process that is a brain process that is supposed to happen all the time happen, it is changing the actual chemistry of our brains. And I think that this has huge consequences when you think about the reasons that we are we are asked to recall events. So something like a criminal case, something like being on a jury, something um, or even something as pedestrian as being in an argument with someone that you love realizing that your your brain is rewired to do something completely different i think that gave me a lot of pause and i think that it's something that we should all deeply contend with because that memory is it's important for so many reasons it's important on a personal level for ourselves but it is also important when we are asked to recall events that involve other people and so not being reliable narrators of other people's stories of facts and of our own stories i think that um, that does lead me to believe that we are intellectually like we are changing a lot because we're, we are not talking about the same thing that we used to talk about. And so um, that's something that gave me a lot of pause in the research that I did. Thank you. Um, because when I chose this topic, I thought what we would end up was with a discussion that was a lot about picture fatigue. Because, well, I suppose because I'm an editor of a magazine and that's what people talk about, is seeing too many pictures or spending too much time on Instagram or so-and-so creative director of so-and-so brand is clearly spending too much time on their Instagram account. As if the visual was some way of dumbing us down and that we were becoming kind of um, infantilized by pictures. Yeah. Um, but Charlotte, I, I was incredibly surprised to discover this kind of idea about the photograph as a, a malign object, either as a vessel to... Uh, transport uh, dangerous material, almost like you know um, how uh, drug dealers use the back of, um, uh, of great masters to kind of transport drugs. There was this idea of the photograph actually becoming this kind of mechanism to to sneak things through, yeah. or that we were giving so much information, a little bit like kind of um, you know people being colonised and giving glass beads. We're just giving away all this information about yeah. ourselves for very little in return. Yeah. And you drew my attention to a very interesting article by an artist, um, Marissa Olson, Olson yeah. called "What's in an Image." And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about this because this is something genuinely I knew nothing about. I think maybe I've read the same research but from a different angle in terms of the neurological research about what happens to memory which is every time you recall a memory, it moves to a different place mm -hmm. neurologically, which is kind of obvious now you say that, that when you have other memories that have come in, that kind of, that have happened after that original memory, you can create new contexts for memories. And so in a way, that's just the natural process of our brains of moving 
information and it becomes there was never a sort of an objective state of that information it was always in proximity and it's always subjective and our subjectivity moves which feels very much at the center of this debate penny about you know or why you would call this or why you would provoke us in this way how dare you <laughs> well look there's plenty um people whose jobs he here um depend on balancing the literary and the visual. You know, there's editors yeah. and there's film directors here. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe I could open out um, and ask them, you know, what happens to a society when we privilege the visual over the textual or meaning? Maybe Stella looks like she'd like to help us with that topic. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just a matter of uh, privileging certain makers over other makers probably and like well there speaks an editor <laughs> <laughs> listening I thought like maybe the answer is just that like men should stop taking photographs altogether um or something else hear, hear. <laughs> but that there are certain I mean I don't really mean that but like that there are um potentially upsides to privileging visuals depending on who's making them and in what context yeah. passion and um, when I heard you think it thought of you coming all the way from Detroit, I wondered whether our topic was rather post-industrial, us all worrying about the kind of social mores of documenting our lives when, um, you know, Rome is burning. Are we being rather trivial? And you're at the coalface of sustainability in our over-consuming world. And I just wonder where does photography or the visual feature in that? Or perhaps it's your tool. So, you know, in the climate space, it's very, you know, it's important to get certain images to your point. It's who's putting them out there. I'm not in favor of just taking pictures or talking about the movement because I've been involved with it for 15 years, closer to 20. But um, it's more so about bringing uh, all cultures and people together to see climate um, as a unified effort where that doesn't happen. There's so much discrimination in the world and everything that we do. And I'm like, this is the one thing that should be bringing us together. So I think that images and you know, getting people to see the, the connection between climate is important and, and Sojourner Truth and what those photos did. Yeah. I always go back to some of those photos because I am standing on the shoulders of my ancestors. Yeah. So when I hear Billie Holiday talk about strange fruit, but I actually see slaves being hung from trees and how those images were used, but who actually benefited from those photos, it becomes something altogether different. Yeah. Passion, like what you're saying, it's actually making me very emotional because I, the argument for me is not like, should we have photographs at all? It's like, do we have enough photographs? Mm, yeah. And yeah. I think that this thing that I'm telling you about the brain and about processing, if everybody knows about these Frederick Douglass photos and knows about Sojourner Truth photos, why do I need a new body of photography to help me have empathy for someone, right. you know, and to help me to have, to, to make that connection? There already, there's an entire body of photography that covers the issues that you do. And so I think that when I think about that, again, like that kind of tourism of what is it that like helps you build that empathy muscle, it feels so empty because it's literally just saying, I only care about you if I care about you. And I think that that is, that is a, that is not the kind of world that I want to live in. What about those women whose identity and being seen is their economy? Yeah. Um, Tessa, 
uh, Zoe, um, Haley, uh, women that have worked as models or or um, their identity as their currency in their work. Um, sure, you, you're photographed often, and there are many photographs I'm sure you like, but there, I'm sure there are many more that you had no control over being taken in the kind of way that uh, our social media uh, culture is going. Um, what is the, the politics of that? The actor Tessa Thompson was perhaps surprisingly reconciled to being photographed, even without her consent. I mean, I, I, I think it's really valuable, actually, to engage with a photograph that you dislike of yourself, you know? <laughs> I, I feel more danger in um, having your identity curated in a way that's only pleasurable to you, because that just doesn't, I mean, that to me is a fallacy. There are things happening on the ground now across the nation that ought to be photographed. I think about the ways in which photography humanizes headlines, and I think that's vital um, and continues to be vital in journalism, although journalism is changing rapidly. But um, I didn't answer your question because... You said something much more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Right. I mean, I, I think your, your point is very well taken. I think that a thing that a lot of people do not understand that take photos, especially on the platforms that we share them, is that there's an entire incentive system to do what yeah. you do. All of these platforms hire behavioral scientists. It's not, a, it's not a mistake that there is now a way that you can share ephemera on Instagram versus having something on your main carousel. It's not some like, oh my god, some engineer had a great idea. It's There are literal people whose job it is to say, here are the incentives for having you spend enough time on this platform. And I think that the argument that I am really making is a really deep interrogation of, are you actually making the choices that you're making, or is somebody manipulating you into making that choice? And are you thinking about it? And also, what are you complicit in? And I think that that is, that, like, on aggregate, like, is it better that there are women, there are pictures of women? Yes. The work that we show women doing on photographs a lot of time, especially in the entertainment industry and in fashion, I do not believe is reflective of the intellect of those women. It is not reflective of their motivation and of who they, who they are as a full human being. And that's something that deeply concerns me. The writer Heidi Julevitz was concerned the discussion was becoming purely hypothetical. I kind of want um, it not to just be an intellectual exercise to talk about, like not taking photos anymore, because that seems like it's gonna ha like come on, it's not gonna stop if we all vote yes, right? Um, and so, how do we sort of think about other ways of making images, right? Or how do we think about other ways of creating visual records or um, <clears throat> visual memories, maybe, right? of things that have happened to us. And I thought of a couple of things. One, I thought about um, souvenirs, right? I mean, souvenirs used to be objects. They were not, or whatever. Souvenir comes from, <clears throat> if I'm not incorrect, the verb to remember in French. And so you would buy something, and that thing would remind you of something you had done. So an object. Um, second, I was thinking of this thing that um, <clears throat> French detectives did, apparently, back in like the 1800s. It was called. Um, uh, portrait parlé, I guess. They were like spoken portraits, where instead of, because they didn't have mugshot capability, so they would write down what a criminal looked like to them, which obviously is a very, um, it would be very biased, obviously, but like that's kind of owning your bias in a sense. So I thought about doing, like, I'm trying to figure out ways to use Instagram away, 
in a sense that interests me because it doesn't any longer. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do like, I'm going to do spoken portraits on my Instagram. That's what you do for a living. It's what I do for a living, but like, like portrait size, tiny portraits. (laughs) So I guess I just wanted to maybe expand the, so that this is not just an intellectual exercise, expand the idea of what counts as visual, what counts as an image. The broadcaster and filmmaker Haley Benton Gates advised from bitter experience that the presence of a camera can be limiting. I guess I'm I'm sort of interested in the behavioral aspects of it in the sense of like what happens when the surveillance state is your friends around you <laughs> and like can you have fun with cameras everywhere and like can you go out dancing and have dinner and have you know the right kind of conversations without feeling like at any moment like somebody might you know this is sort of trite but I think about it a lot in terms of um, this is a bad example but I think about it a lot in terms of karaoke (laughs) Um, because I think Karaoke is like Vegas, like it should just like <laughs> exist and it's there and like there should not be any evidence <laughs> of whatever happened. And yet, <laughs> if you go to karaoke with your friends, like it will be on the internet. <laughs> and I just think I find myself I- inhibiting certain aspects of my personality because I don't <laughs> want to be recorded. Well, this conversation clearly could run and run, but the point of the Mew Mew Musings lunch debate is that we need to make a decision, and now's the time, the vote. Can I please ask all guests in favour of our motion, this House believes we need to stop taking photographs to raise their yes block. High in the air, so we can count them. Eight, in advance on six, we have eight yeses. Can I now please ask everybody uh, not in favour of stopping taking photographs to raise their no block. On the final count then, we make that eight yeses, we make that eight yeses to 18 noes. So the noes have it. It is my duty to inform the House that the motion is denied. This House is not in favour of stopping taking photographs. Well, this momentous news uh, concludes today's debate. Uh, please accept mine and Mew Mew's heartfelt thanks for being such great sports in the second of the Mew Mew Musings. We're super grateful for your attention. I can't believe that everybody has stayed and so passionately got involved. I'm thrilled. Everyone said, oh yeah, the Americans are going to love it. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, for your generous participation generally. Um, but of course, I'm extremely grateful to our excellent speakers, Aminatu So and Charlotte Cotton. <laughs> As Haley Benton Gates mentioned in the Q&A, most people are more forthcoming in private, which these interviews conducted by Daniel Redeutschen prove. I'm Stella Bugby. Do you ever look back over the photos you take? I, I frequently look back over the photos I take and I am pretty um, ruthless about editing in the moment. So I save one photograph 
you know, out of a series of many that I take, and that is the representative photograph, but that requires a kind of um, superhuman uh, patience or self-discipline that I try to keep going. I'm Kate Young. What's your favorite photograph? My whole life is shaped heavily by images. I mean, it's why I work in fashion. And I care so much about so many photos. I mean, I probably work in this industry because of a photo. I probably worked at a certain magazine because of a photo. I probably live in a house that looks a certain way because of a photo. Like, I, I'm so visually cued for every decision in my life that like to choose one is so impossible. The writer Matthew Schneier thought it probably was time to stop taking photographs. Matthew, which motion did you vote for? I voted for. Did the debate change how you think about photos? Uh, it certainly inflected my thinking about photos, and I thought that Amina made uh, excellent points about how we need to interrogate uh, the assumption of neutrality that, that uh, photography brings along with it, which is in fact a complete fiction. The writer and curator Kimberly Drew voted yes, we need to stop taking photographs. Kimberly, which motion did you vote for? I voted yes. Um, what one thing did you learn from today's debate? I learned that when we're talking about photographs and the ways in which we execute them, that we have to be really thoughtful about both the subject and the author. What's the last thing you took a photograph of? Aminatu, <laughs> when she was arguing that we shouldn't take photographs. <laughs> Doreen St. Felix. Which motion did you vote for? I voted that yes, we should abolish photography. And why were you not surprised by the result? I think, you know, prior to even entering the room, the concept of abolishing photography just seemed so impossible in this era of mass image production. But I was really moved and persuaded by Amina or Aminatu's argument. I think that for many people, the image has become a shortcut of connection. People don't necessarily have to access each other in the way that they have had to in the past because it's so easy to mass produce images and it's so easy to talk through them and to let them do a sort of limited amount of talking. Um, and, you know, I thought initially I would come in as a writer, someone who makes images, albeit using a different medium, that I would be obviously against the motion, but Amina persuaded me. Could you state your name just for the recording, please? Yes. Celia Rolsenhall. What's the one thing that you learned from today's debate? I've been thinking a lot about how to f photograph climate change, and I've been reading a lot of articles about how um, we've otherized how we document climate change and also like using sort of um, very wide landscape like God's eye, bird's eye views is actually the opposite as to how to actually get people to connect. And so in this like oversaturated market of images, I do think that there's still space where in which we haven't discovered yet to how um, properly uh, document certain things. And so I actually think that we do need photographs because we need to keep sort of discovering and understanding where we are as a world and as a society. When you're taking photographs, are you ever concerned that you're missing out on the action by being the documenter rather than the participant? I actually don't take very many photographs. Um, and when I have my film camera with me, um, because it is film, I'm very kind of certain in particular with what I do take. I'm precious with it. Um, so 
I don't have that many photographs. And when I go hiking or to weddings or to different experiences, birthday parties, I rarely take my phone out because I actually just want to be there. So I'm actually one of those people who really doesn't have my phone on me a lot. Thank you. That was the choreographer and filmmaker Celia Rolson-Hall talking with Miu Miu Musing's Danielle Radoichin after the lunch debate in October 2019. Next time on Miu Miu Musings, we take on an ambitious discussion topic, that of authenticity, with the debate motion, This House Believes There Is Nothing Original Under the Sun. Speaking in favour is the unstoppable writer and podcaster Anne Friedman. Speaking against is the virtuoso pianist and multimedia artist Rosie Chan, in what promises to be a spectacular contest in Beijing. So join us next time on Miu Miu Musings for more fun facts and ferocious discussion. Miu Miu Musings is a co-production between Miu Miu Podcasts, Penny Martin and In Talks With Productions. Our theme music was created by Frederick Sanchez and our graphic identity was created by Studio Veronica Ditting. The Miu Miu Musings team includes Daniel Radoichen, Warren Borg, Trisha Ward and Richard O'Mani. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like it, leave a review and share it with your friends. If you'd like to find out more about Miu Miu Musings, please head to miumiu.com. And if you'd like to join the conversation on social media, search for at Miu Miu or the hashtag Miu Miu Musings. Mm-hmm.